0: At some undefined point in the monster-haunted middle of the 20th century, when American skies were filled for the first time with silver saucers, when glowing alien goblins were laying siege to remote farmhouses in Kentucky, and when Bigfoot was first making a name for himself at a place called Bluff Creek. One strange figure roamed America's backwoods and small towns, searching for mystery. He carried a silver-stringed guitar on his back, and used only his songs and his knowledge of hillbilly folklore to do battle with the witches and bogies of the Appalachian Mountains. His name was Silver John the Balladier, and he was the creation of the writer Manly Wade Wellman. Between 1951 and 1984, Silver John Stories had this wandering musician travelling up and down the Appalachians, encountering creatures drawn from the folklore of North Carolina. They provide an interesting fictional aside to ideas about monsters and potentially the new field of cryptozoology, especially in this crucial time for the development of monster lore in America. You're listening, of course, to Wide Atlantic Weird, the podcast that tries to answer the questions, why do people believe weird things, and when does irrational belief actually become dangerous? I'm your host, Kean, and from deep within the Wide Atlantic Weird bunker, Well, actually, on this occasion, we are once again enjoying the delights of the woodland surrounding the bunker, eh, given the theme of the episode. We'll be serving up another bunch of cryptids in classic fiction. That's what I'm calling this mini-series. And so, tonight, the bunker's library, or should that be the forest, will shudder to the menagerie of crazy critters that haunt the on Yandro by Manly Wade Wellman. Y'all stick around now, you hear? Hello and welcome to the show. This is your host, and You are listening to Wide Atlantic Weird. Now, the English spring has finally arrived. There was actually a bit of sunlight this week. It was has been quite a warm and pleasant evening. So for that reason, I have taken the podcast out into the forests that surround the bunker. For that reason, you will hear all sorts of atmospheric noises in the background. There's even a very loud cuckoo somewhere nearby that you might pick up on. Hopefully some of these sounds will put you in the mindset of being in the rural Appalachian Mountains, which would be appropriate for our story this week. Uh, Now, tonight I am enjoying if that is the word, a very, very, very cheap bourbon. It is, in fact, a supermarket home brand one. I won't say which market, but it is called Old Samuel. So Old Samuel bourbon is what you will hear me sloshing away on this evening. I think it's appropriate for the subject matter. I'm sorry I couldn't get anything better, but you know what? I've done the rounds of cheap supermarket bourbons, and I think Old Samuel is the best one. So, on to tonight's story, The Deseric on Yandro, a very strange name comprising itself of two words, uh, neither of which really meant anything to me when I first read this book as a kid. Uh, I might say off the bat as well that because I'm doing this recording outside, I have a feeling that's going to play havoc with my editing. In fact, there may not be any editing whatsoever. So I do apologise ahead of time for any spluttering or sneezing or anything else that might happen Uh, during the reading of tonight's story. I'm normally able to edit those out without you ever even noticing that I have done so. At least, that's how I like to flatter myself to think. But uh, on this occasion, that may not be the case. Hopefully, if I'm able to do my job uh, properly, you won't even notice. And back to the story. So when I was a kid... I first came across this story in a collection called Alfred Hitchcock's Monster Museum. Now this was old even when I was a kid. It's from 1965. I remember getting it out of the library um, in my home city of Cork and I was absolutely crazy about this book. I must have been seven or eight at the time. And I didn't know or care much about Alfred Hitchcock. I knew he wasn't... he didn't make movies that were horror or anything like that, so I didn't really care too much about him. My father was into Hitchcock movies and used to tell me a bit about them, but I knew he was more of a suspense guy than a monster or horror guy, so I didn't really care all that much. However, I'm glad I got this book because there were stories in there that really made their mark on me. I think I read some of them at just the right time. Most of you out there listening probably uh, know the feeling of coming across something when you're very young and having it affect you um, because of how young you were when you first read it. There are some stories here that are really primal to me that really helped to shape my ideas about storytelling and about horror uh, and things like that. So uh, that's where I first came across this one. I didn't really have a frame of reference for most of what was going on with this story when I was a kid and I'm not going to lie and pretend that it was my favourite one at the time but I did come back to it later in life and really, really appreciate what Manly Wade Wellman was doing in this story. There's a few other classics in here. It's worth tracking down. It was a bit of a a stitch-up, like a collection of classic tales that were already quite old at the time when this was put together. And I really, really question how much Mr. Hitchcock had to do with this book at all. Probably, if uh, I think he wrote the introduction and that was probably about it. But whoever made the selection really knew what they were doing. There's some great stuff in here. Uh, One of my favourites from the time when I was a kid was called Day of the Dragon by a guy called uh, Guy Engor. That's a tremendously exciting tale about um, modern day dragons. Basically, scientists um, start experimenting with lizards and discover that uh, they have been dragons all along, but that some of their dragon like features have perhaps been genetically recessed over time and they accidentally trigger them again. It's a bit like the British movie Reign of Fire, if anybody remembers that one. I think it's from about 2009 or so, maybe 2007 but the dragons end up taking over the world. This this book was not short of end-of-the-world-type scenarios. Another classic from Alfred Hitchcock's Monster Museum was a short story called Slime by Joseph Payne Brennan, Brennan is quite well known to people who are are fans of weird fiction of the mid-20th century. Uh, Slime, is it's a bit like uh, The Blob. It's like an earlier version of The Blob. It's from the 1950s, if I recall, off the top of my head. And man, this story is tailor-made for kids who like monsters because there's no nonsense in there. There's no characterization. There's just a blob, like a a prehistoric creature that is just a, a kind of a sentient lump of slime that crawls out from underneath a bog and starts terrorizing small-town America. It's the kind of thing that 1950s American horror movies were made of, and there's no question that people who made movies like The Blob and later on The Thing um, are taking a little of the DNA from slime. Another story that really affected me at the time was called The Microscopic Giants by a man called Paul Ernst. This is a really, really creepy story about some scientists who discover that there is a race of beings living beneath the earth who are incredibly dense. Because they live at such high pressure Um, in this towards the centre of the earth, the creatures are incredibly heavy. All of their atoms, if you like, are closer together than ours. So the way they interact with us when they finally make their uh, horrendous uh, breakout into the surface world is really, really creepy and memorable. I highly recommend it. Lastly, one of the other stories that uh, was important to me as a kid was called Doomsday Deferred. It's by Murray Leinster. I think he goes under a different name in the book. He goes under the name Will F. Jenkins, but Leinster was actually quite a well-known science fiction writer. I know him from some of his Medship Man stories in the 50s. He wrote a lot of science fiction about a space-going um, doctor. Uh, so this is quite a different kind of story. It's, it's a traditional mid-20th century adventure story about white guys who go out into the jungles. Uh, and what the the leading character comes across and where the horror comes from is the notion that deep in the amazon jungles a colony of ants has become sentient and has become super intelligent and is acting against humanity great stuff really really classic science fiction ideas here and um, that's kind of a subgenre subgenre i'm really interested in especially with my background in biology and with uh, social insects in particular I love the concept of the super organism. I love the idea of um, tiny little animals like ants coming together uh, to get revenge on us. So, if you can track it down anywhere, it's, it's quite hard to get outside of this book. Doomsday Deferred is one of the great stories about kind of ants or small insects attacking humans. Uh, a little information about Manly Wade Wellman. Firstly, congratulations on the name, Mister Wellman. I mean. If you're going to call yourself something, if you're going to make up your own name, which I wonder if you did, go ahead and call yourself manly. Can't go wrong, especially in the 1950s. So Mr. Wellman lived from 1903 until 1986. He had a very varied life. He grew up in what's now Angola because his parents were medical officers and missionaries. Uh, But he lived most of his life in the US. And he most is famous. He did a lot of writing. He wrote a lot of science fiction for the pulp magazines in the mid-20th century, but probably most famous for his kind of Appalachian folktales influence stories, like the one you're going to hear tonight. Uh, In particular, his writing for the magazine Weird Tales, while it was being edited by the famous Farnsworth Wright, uh, a very famous figure in the history of weird fiction, but also bit of a creepy guy. He was very famous for his interest in kind of bondage and overtly sexual covers, uh, usually painted by the fantastic Margaret Brundage, who was a very famous person who did a lot of those painted covers for those wonderful uh, mid-20th century magazines. A lot of the authors incidentally cottoned on to the fact that Farnsworth Wright, as the editor, was more likely to give your story a cover if a cover status if you had some kind of creepy bondage sexual scenes going on in your story. So many of the writers tucked to uh, chucking those in there uh, whether or not they were required by the needs of the story. Uh, Conan creator Robert E. Howard seems to have been particularly fond of doing this, uh, knowing that Farnsworth Wright couldn't help putting the stories on the front cover uh, if it had a bit of bondage in it. Now, Wellman, a few influences I will mention, especially for this story, would be he was influenced by an occultist named Ran, uh, Vance Randolph who became friendly with him and took him on trips around the Arkansas-Ozark mountains. And this gave him some of the ideas that he would later use in his Appalachian stories. During this time, he did a lot of travelling, meeting people living in kind of backwoods towns, and picking up on the folklore that they would have had. During this time, he also met a musician named Obre Ramsey, who gave him some of the ideas to include music as one of the key elements of the stories, in particular, the Silver John stories, like the one I'm about to read. So Silver John, as I said in the opening, is a kind of a wandering minstrel. He travels from place to place. He seems to only exist on the kindness of strangers. He uses his silver stringed guitar to play songs for people, and uh, therefore they put him up and they give him a place to stay and they give him something to eat. And that seems to be how he makes his way in the world. He's a humble guy. He's not interested in showing off. He's not into, interested in material possessions either. Uh, however, he is a very intelligent and he does have a vast knowledge uh, of uh, occult tomes, books and folklore of the Appalachian Mountains, and he uses this knowledge to help him out in his tangles with various supernatural creatures. One of the reasons I've chosen uh, tonight's story is because of the cryptozoological element. I'm really, really interested in cryptozoology, the the supposed study of hidden or mystery animals, and. This story, though it has a folkloric feel, it also has a bit of a cryptozoological feel. Also, it features a whole bunch of different animals stuck in, thrown in there um, late in the story. And even as a kid, I remember feeling they sounded more, they felt more folkloric than cryptozoological to me. Uh, especially the idea that all of the animals seem to show up together as if they're in cahoots with something. So they're more like kind of folkloric. Um, sentient animals, the kind of animals who would stop you on a crossroads in the forest and ask you three questions um, before you could continue, rather than a sort of a Bigfoot-type cryptid. But there is an element of both, I think, in this story. If you're interested in Silver John after hearing this story, there are a few collections of his stories. There's actually five novels and um, a a bunch of short stories that can be found in various collections, such as Who Fears the Devil?, John the Balladeer, and uh, a book called Owl Hoot in the Night, and Other Omens. One final note before I get stuck into the story. There is a song in this, as there are in many of the Silver John stories. He plays a song right at the beginning. Now, he doesn't name the song, and I have been reading this story for years, and because of my own background in bluegrass and in old-timey music, which comes from that part of the world, I always heard the song in a very particular way. And when I was preparing this episode, I actually did a quick and dirty recording of what I imagined it might be. I was unaware whether or not it was actually a real song. After doing the recording, I looked it up and I discovered that it is, in fact, a song called He's Gone Away, which seems to be a bit of a a standard or a classic um, American folk song if you're in the right circles. So I'm slightly embarrassed that I didn't know that. But having listened to it, it's a fantastic song, but it's really not the sort of thing that I can do justice to myself. If I can find uh, a copy of it that's uh, available to use, I will stick it at the end of the podcast. But for now, just be aware that the one I've stuck into the telling of the tale here is a version I have created myself um, based on my own feelings, my own vibes for the story. So uh, treat it as an interpretation, if you will. The lyrics are, as Silver John sings them, are not identical to the song uh, that, as it's known in America. It could be an older form, or it could be manly Wade Wellman taking a bit of poetic license. I'm not sure. In any case, settle down, get yourself a glass of uh, whiskey or bourbon yourself if you have some, enjoy the sounds of the forest, and get ready for The Deseric on Yandro by Manly Wade Wellman. The folks at the party clapped me such an encore, I sang that song. The lady had stopped her car at the roadside when she saw my thumb, and my silver-strung guitar under my arm. Asked me my name, I told her John. Asked where I was headed, I told her nowhere special. Asked could I play that guitar, I played it as we rolled along. Then she invited me most kindly to her country house to sing to her friends, and they'd be obliged, she said. And I went. The people there were fired up with what they'd drunk. Lots of ladies and men in costly clothes. And I had my bothers not getting drunk too. But shoo, they liked what I played and sang. Stayed off worn out songs. I smote out what they'd never heard before. Witch in the wilderness. And Rebel Soldier. And Vandy, Vandy, I've come to court you. When they clapped and hollered for more, I sang the Yandro song like this. I'll build me a desert on Yandro's high hill, where the wild beast can reach me or hear my sad cry. For he's gone gone away to stay a little while, but he'll come back if he comes ten thousand miles. Then they strung around and made me more welcome than any stranger could call for and the hostess lady said I must stay to supper and sleep there that night. But at that second, everybody sort of pulled away, and one man came up and sat down by me. I'd been aware that, when he first came in, things stilled down, like with little boys when a big bully shows himself. He was built short and broad, his clothes were sporty, cut handsome and costly. His buckskin hair was combed across his head to baffle folks he wasn't getting bald. His round, pink face wasn't soft, and his big, smiling teeth reminded you there was a bony skull under that meat. His pale eyes, like two gravel bits, prodded me and made me remember I needed a haircut and a shave. You said Yandro, young man, said this fellow. He said it almost like a charge in court with me, the prisoner. Yes, sir. The song's mountainy, not too far from the Smokies. I heard it in a valley, and the highest peak over that valley's called Yandro. Now, I said, I've had scholar-men argue me it really means yonder, yonder high hill. But the peak's called Yandro. Not a usual name. No, John. He smiled, toothy and fierce. Not a usual name. I'm like the peak. I'm called Yandro, too. "'How you, Mr. Yandro?' I said. "'I never heard of that peak or valley, nor, I imagine, did my father before me. "'But my grandfather, Joris Yandro, came from the southern mountains. "'He was young, with small education, but lots of energy and ambition. "'Mr. Yandro swelled up inside his fancy clothes. "'He went to New York, then Chicago. "'His fortunes prospered. "'His son, my father, and then I... We contrived to make them prosper still more. You are to be honored, I said, my politest, but I judged with no reason to be sure that he might not be too honorable about how he made his money or used it. The way the others drew from him made me reckon he scared them, and that kind of folk scares worst when their money pockets located. I have done all right, he said, not caring who heard the brag. "'I don't think anybody for a hundred miles around here "'can turn a deal or make a promise "'without clearing it with me. "'John, I own this part of the world.' "'Again,' he showed his teeth. "'You're the first one ever to tell me "'about where my grandfather may have come from. "'Yandro's High Hill, eh? "'How do we get there, John?' "'I tried to think of the way from highway to sideway, "'sideway to trail, and so in and around and over. "'I fear,' I said, "'I could show you better than I could tell you.' "'All right, you'll show me,' he said, "'with no notion I might want something different. "'I can afford to make up my mind at a moment's notice like that. "'I'll call the airport and charter a plane. "'We leave now.' "'I asked John to stay tonight,' said my hostess lady. "'We leave now,' said Mr. Yandro, "'and she shut right up, and I saw how it was. "'Everybody was scared of him. "'Maybe they'd be pleasured if I took him out of there for a while.' Get your plane, I said. We leave now. He meant that thing. Not many hours had died before the hired plane set us down at the airport between Asheville and Hendersonville. A taxi rode us into Hendersonville. Mr. Yandro woke up a used carman and bought a fair car from him. Then, on my guiding, Mr. Yandro took out in the dark for that part of the mountains I pointed out to him. The sky stretched over us with no moon at all, only a many stars, like little stitches of blazing thread in a black quilt. For real light, only our headlamps, first on a paved road, twining around one slope, and over another, and behind a third, then a gravel road, and pretty good, then a dirt road, and pretty bad. What a stinking country, said Mr. Yandro, as we chugged along a ridge as lean as a butcher knife. I didn't say how I resented that word about a country that stoops to none for prettiness. ''Maybe we ought to have waited till day,'' I said. ''I never wait,'' he sniffed. ''Where's the town?'' ''No town. Just the valley. Three, four hours away. We'll be there by midnight.'' ''Oh, God. Let's have some of that whiskey I brought.'' He reached for the glove compartment, but I shoved his hand away. ''Not if you're going to drive these mountain roads, Mr. Yandro.'' ''Then you drive a while, and I'll take a drink.'' ''I don't know how to drive a car, Mr. Yandro.'' Oh, God, he said again, and couldn't have scorned me more if I'd said I didn't know how to wash my face. What is a desrick exactly? Only old-age folks use the word anymore. It's the kind of cabin they used to make, strong logs and a door you can bar and loophole windows, so you could stand off Indians, maybe. Or the wild beasts can't reach you, he quoted and snickered. What wild beasts do they have up here in the forgotten latitudes? Can rightly say. A few bears. A wildcat or two. Used to be wolves, and a bounty for killing them. I'm not sure what else. True enough, I wasn't sure about the tales I'd heard. Not anyway, when Mr. Yandro was ready to sneer at them for foolishment. Our narrow road climbed a great slant of rock one way, then doubled down to climb opposite, and became a double rut, with an empty, hell-scary drop of thousands of feet beside the car. Finally, Mr. Yandro edged us into a sort of nick beside the road and shut off the power. He shook. Fear must have been a new feel in his bones. Want some of the whiskey, John? He asked and drank. Thank you, no. We walk from here anyway, beyond the valley. He grumped and mad whispered, but out he got. I took a flashlight and my silver-strung guitar and led out. It was a downways walk, on a narrow trail where even mules would be nervous and not quiet enough to be easy. There were mountain night noises like you never get used to, not even if you're born and raised there, and live and die there. Noises too soft and sneaky to be real murmuring voices. Noises like big flapping wings far off and then near. And above and below the trail, noises like heavy soft paws keeping pace with you, sometimes two paws, sometimes four, sometimes many. They stay with you, noises like that all the hours you grope along the night trail, all the way down to the valley so low, till you bless God for the little crumb of light that means a human home, and you ache and pray to get to that home. Be it ever so humble, so you'll be safe in the light. I've wondered since if Mr. Yandro's constant blubber and chatter was a string of curses or a string of prayers. The light we saw was a pine-knot fire inside a little coop above the stream that giggled in the valley bottom. The door was open, and someone sat on the threshold. Is that a Deserick? panted and puffed Mr. Yandro. No, it's newer made. There's Miss Tully at the door, sitting up to think. Miss Tully remembered me and welcomed us. She was 80 or 90, without a tooth in her mouth to clamp her stone bull pipe, but she stood straight as a pine on the spit-slab floor and the firelight showed no grey in her tight-combed black hair. "'Rest your hats,' said Miss Tully. "'So this stranger man's name is Mr. Yandro. "'Funny you coming just now. "'You're looking for the Deseric on Yandro. "'It's still right where it's been.' And she pointed with her pipe stem off into the empty dark across the valley and up. Inside, she gave us two chairs bottomed with juniper bark and sat on a stool next to the shelf with herbs and pots and one or two old paper books. The Long Lost Friend, and Egyptian Secrets, and Big Albert, the one they say can't be thrown away or given away, only got rid of by burying with a funeral prayer, like a human corpse. Funny, she said again. You coming along as the 75 years are up? We questioned, and she told us what we'd come to hear. I was just a little pigtail girl back then, she said, when Joris Yandro, courted Polly Wiltz, the witch girl. Mr. Yandro, you favour your grandsire a might much. He wasn't as stout-built as you, and younger by years when he left. Even the second time hearing it, I listened hard. It was like a many-such tale at the start. Polly Wiltz was sure enough a witch, not just a study witch like Miss Tully, and Polly Wiltz's beauty would melt the heart of nature and make a dumb man cry out, Praise God who made her. But none dared court her, save only Joris Yandro, who was handsome for a man like she was lovely for a girl. For it was his witch to get her to show him the gold on top of the mountain named for his folks that only Polly Wilts and her witching could find. "'Certain sure there's gold in these mountains,' I answered Mr. Yandro's interrupting question. "'Before ever the California rush started, folks mined and minted golds in these parts, the history men say. "'Gold,' he repeated,' Both respectfully and greedy, I was right to come. Miss Tully said that Joris Yandro coaxed Polly Wilts to bring down gold to him, and he carried it away and never came back. And Polly Wilts pined and mourned like a sick bird, and on Yandro's top she built her desert. She sang the song, the one eyed song, sung. It was part of a long spell and charm. Three quarters of a century would pass, 75 years, and her lover would come back. But he didn't, said Mr. Yandro. My grandfather died up north. He sent his grandson who favours him, said Miss Tully. The song you heard brought you back at the right time. She thumbed tobacco into her pipe. All the Yandro kin moved away, pure down scared of Polly Wilt's singing. In her desert where the wild beasts can't reach her, quoted Mr. Yandro, and chuckled. John says they have bears and wildcats up here, He expected her to say I was stretching it. Oh, there's other creatures too. Scarce animals, like the taller. The taller, he said. It's the hugest flying thing there is, I guess, said Miss Tully. Its voice tolls like a bell to tell other creatures their feeds near. And there's the flat. It lies level with the ground and not much higher. It can wrap you like a blanket. She lighted the pipe. And the bamat, big the bamat is. The behemoth, you mean, he suggested. No, the behemoth's in the Bible. The bamat, something hairy-like, with big ears and a long wiggly nose and twisty white teeth sticking out of its mouth. Oh, and Mr. Yandro trumpeted his laughter. You've got some story about the mammoth. Why, they've been extinct, dead and forgotten, for thousands of years. Not for so long, I've heard tell, she said, puffing. Anyway, he went on arguing, the mammoth that the bamat, as you call it, is of the elephant family. How would anything like that get up in the mountains? Maybe folks hunted it here, said Miss Tully. And maybe it stays there, so folks will think it's dead and gone a thousand years. And there's the behinder. And what, said Mr. Yandro, might the behinder look like? Well, can't rightly say, Mr. Yandro, for it's always behind the man or woman it wants to grab. And there's the skim... It kites through the air, and the culverin that can shoot pebbles with its mouth. And you believe all that, sneered Mr. Yandrow, the way he always sneered at everything, everywhere. Why else should I tell it, she replied. Well, sir, you're back where your kin used to live, in the valley where they named the mountain for them. I can let you two sleep on my front stoop tonight. I came to climb the mountain and see the desert, said Mr. Yandrow, with that anxious hurry to him that I kept wondering about. You can't climb up there until it's light, she told him, and she made us two quilt pallets on the split-slab stoop. I was tired and glad to stretch out, but Mr. Yandro grumbled as if we were wasting time. At sun-up next morning, Miss Tully fried us some side meat and slices of hominy-grit porridge, and she fixed us a snack to carry and a gourd to put water in. Mr. Yandro held out a ten-dollar bill. No, thank you, said Miss Tully. I bade you stay, and I won't take money for that. Oh, everybody takes money from me, he snickered, and threw it on the door sill at her feet. Go on, it's yours. Quick as a weasel, Miss Tully's hand grabbed a stick of stove wood. Lean down and take back that money, Bill, mister, she said. He did as she told him. With the stick, she pointed out across the stream that ran through the thickets below us, and up the height beyond. She acted as if there wasn't any trouble a second before. That's the Andrew Mountain, she said. There, on the highest point, where it looks like the crown of a hat, thick with trees all the way up, stands the desert built by Polly Wilts. You look close, with the sun rising, and you can maybe make it out. I looked hard. There for sure it was, far off and high up and tiny, but I could see it. It looked a lean sort of building. How about trails going up? I asked her. There's trails up there, John, but nobody walks them. Now, now, said Mr. Yandro, if there's a trail, somebody must walk it. Maybe a lot in what you say, but I know nobody in this valley would set foot to such a trail, not with what they say's up there. He laughed at her, as I wouldn't have dared. You mean the bamat, he said, and the flat, and the skim, and the culverin. And the toller, she added for him, and the behinder. Only a gone gump would go up there. We headed away down to the waterside and crossed on logs laid on top of rocks. On the far side, a trail led along, and when the sun was an hour higher, we were at the foot of Yandro's high hill, and a trail went up there too. We rested. Mr. Yandro needed rest worse than I did. Moving most of the night before, unused to walking and climbing, he had a gaunted look to his heavy face. "'and his clothes were sweated and dust dulled out of his shoes. "'But he grinned at me. "'So she's waited 75 years,' he said. "'And so I look like the man she's waiting for. "'And so there's gold up there, "'more gold than my grandfather could have carried off. "'You believe what you've been hearing?' I said, and it was a mystery. "'John, a wise man knows when to believe the unusual "'and how it will profit him. "'She's up there, waiting, and so is the gold.' "'What when you find it?' I asked. "'My grandfather was able to go off and leave her. "'It sounds like a good example to me.' "'He grinned wider and toothier. "'I'll give you part of the gold.' "'No thanks, Mr. Yandro. "'You don't want your pay? "'Why did you come here with me?' "'Just made up my mind on a moment's notice, like you.' "'He scowled then, but he looked up at the height. "'How long will it take to climb, John?' Depends on how fast we climb, how well we keep up the pace. Then let's go, and he started up the trail. It wasn't Folk's feet had worn that trail. I saw a hoof mark. Dear, grunted Mr. Andrew, and I said, maybe. We scrambled up on a rightward slant, then leftward. The trees marched in close around us with branches that filtered only soft green light. Something rustled, and we saw a brown furry shape as big as a cat scuttling out of sight. "'Woodchuck,' wheezed Mr. Yandro again, and I said, "'Maybe.' "'After an hour's working upwards, we rested, "'and after two hours more, we rested again. "'Around eleven o'clock, we reached an open space "'where clear light touched the middle, "'and there we sat on a log and ate the cornbread "'and smoked meat Miss Tully had fixed. "'Mr. Yandro mopped his face with a ha- fancy handkerchief "'and gobbled food for strength to glitter his eye at me. "'What are you gloomin' about?' he said, You look as if you'd call me a name if you weren't afraid. I've held my tongue, I said, by way of manners, not fear. I'm just thinking about how and why we came so far and sudden to this place. You sang me a song and I heard and thought I'd come to where my people originated. Now I have a hunch about profit. That's enough for you. It's not just that gold story, I said. You're more than rich enough. I'm going up there, said Mr. Yandro, because, by God, that old hag down there said everybody's afraid to do it, and you said you'd go with me. I'll go right to the top with you, I said. I forbore to say that something had come close and looked from among the trees behind him. It was big and broad-headed, with elephant ears to the right and left, and white tusks like banisters on a spiral staircase. But it was woolly shaggy, like a buffalo bull. The BAMAT! How could such a thing move so quiet like? He drank from his whiskey bottle, and on we climbed. We could hear those noises in the woods and brush, behind rocks and down little gullies, as if the mountainside thronged with living things as thick as fleas on a possum dog, and another sight sneakier. I didn't let on, I was nervous. Why are you singing under your breath? he grunted after a while. I'm not singing, I said. I need my breath for climbing. I hear you, he charged me, like a lawyer in court. We'd stopped dead on the trail, and I heard it too. It was soft, almost like some half-remembered song in your mind. It was the Yandro song, all right. Look away, look away, look away over Yandro, where them wild things are flying. From bow to bow, and a mating with their mates, so why not me with mine? That singing comes from up above us, I told Mr. Yandro. Then he said... We must be nearly at the top. As we started climbing again, I could hear the noises to right and left in the woods, and then I realised they'd quieted down when we stopped. They moved when we moved. They waited when we waited. There were lots of them. Soft noises, but lots of them. Which is why I myself, and probably Mr Yandro too, didn't pause any more on the way up, even on a rocky stretch where we had to climb on all fours. It may have been an hour after noon when we came to the top. Right there was a circle-shaped clearing, with the trees thronged around it all the way, except an open space towards the slope. Those trees had mist among and between them, quiet and fluffy like spider webbing. And at the open space, on the lip of the way down, perched the desert. Old-aged was what it looked. It stood high and looked the higher, because it was built so narrow of unnotched logs, set four above four, hog-pen fashion, as tall as a tall tobacco barn. The spaces between the logs were clinked shut with great masses and wads of clay. The steep pitched roof was of shingles, cut long and narrow, so that they looked almost like thatch. There was one big door made of an axe-chopped plank, and the hinges must have been inside, for I could see none. And one window covered with what must have been rawhide scraped thin, with the glow of soft light coming through. That's it, puffed Mr. Yandro, the desert." I looked at him then, and knew what most he wanted on this earth. He wanted to be boss. Money was just something to greaten him. His idea of greatness was bigness. He wanted to do all the talking and have everybody else do the listening. He had his eyes hung on that deseric, and he licked his lips like a cat over a dish of cream. "'Let's go in,' he said. "'Not where I'm not invited,' I told him, "'as flatly as anybody ever could tell him. "'I said I'd come to the top. "'This is the top. "'Come with me,' he said. "'My name's Yandro. "'This mountain's name is Yandro. "'I can buy and sell every man, woman and child "'in this part of the country. "'If I say it's all right to go into a house,' It's all right to go into a house. He meant that thing. The world and everybody in it was just there to let him walk on. He took a step towards the desert. Somebody hummed inside, not the words of the song, but the tune. Mr. Yandro snorted at me to show how small he reckoned me because I held back, and he headed towards the big door. If she's there, she'll show me the gold, he said but I couldn't have moved from where I stood at the edge of the clearing. I was aware of a sort of closing in all around the edge, among the trees and brushy clumps. Not that the closing in could be seen, but there was a gong, gong, farther off, the voice of the toller, narrating to the other creatures their feed was near. And above the treetops sailed a round flat thing, like a big plate being pitched high. A skim. Then another skim and the blood inside my body was cold and solid as ice, and my voice turned to a handful of sand in my throat. I knew, plain as paint, that if I tried to back up, to turn around even, my legs would fail and I'd fall down. With fingers like twigs, with sleet stuck to them, I dragged around my guitar to pluck at the silver strings, because silver is protection against evil. But I didn't. For out of the bushes near me, the bamat stuck its broad woolly head, And it shook that head at me once for silence. It looked me between the eyes, steadier than a beast should look at a man, and shook its head. I wasn't to make any noise. And I didn't. When the Bamat saw that I'd be quiet, it paid me no more mind, and I knew I wasn't to be included in what would happen then. Mr Yandro was knocking at the axe-chopped door. He waited and knocked again. I heard him growl something about how he wasn't used to waiting for people to answer his knock. Inside, the humming had died out. After a moment, Mr Yandro moved around to where the window was and picked at the rawhide. I could see, but he couldn't, as around from behind the corner of the desert flowed something. It lay out on the ground like a broad, flat, short-furred carpet rug, but it moved, humping and then flattening out, the way a measuring worm moves. It moved pretty fast, right toward Mr. Yandro from behind, and to one side. The toller said, Gong, 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 from closer in. Anybody in there? bawled Mr. Yandro. Let me in. The crawling carpet brushed its edge against his foot. He looked down at it, and his eyes stuck out all of a sudden, like two doorknobs. He knew what it was, and named it at the top of his voice. The flat! Humping against him, it tried to wrap around his foot and leg, He gasped at something I'd never want written down for my last words and pulled loose and ran, fast and straight, toward the edge of the clearing. "'Gong, gong,' said the toller, and Mr. Yandro tried to slip along next to the trees. But just ahead of him, the culverin hoved itself half into sight on its many legs. It pointed its needle-shaped mouth and spit a pebble. I heard the pebble ring on Mr. Yandro's head. He staggered against a tree." And I saw what nobody's ever supposed to see. The behinder flung itself on his shoulders. Then I knew why nobody's supposed to see one. I wish I hadn't. To this day I can see it, as plain as a fence at noon, and forever I will be able to see it. But talking about it's another matter. Thank you, I won't try. Then everything else was out, the bamat, the culverin, and all the others, they were hustling him across towards the desert, and the door moved slowly and quietly open for him to come in. As for me, I was out of their minds, and I hoped and prayed they wouldn't care if I just went on down the trail as fast as I could set one foot below the other. Scrambling and scrambling down, without a noise to keep me company, I figured that I'd probably had my unguessed part in the whole thing. Seventy-five years had come to pass, and then Mr. Yandro, come there to the desert. And it needed me, or somebody like me, to meet him and sing the song that would put it in his head and heart to come to where his granddaddy had courted Polly Wilts, just as though it was his own whim. No. No, of course, he wasn't the man who had made Polly Wiltz love him and then left. But he was the man's grandson, of the same blood and the same common low-down sorry nature that wanted money and power and didn't care who he hurt so that he could have both. And he looked like Joris Yandro. Polly Wiltz would recognize him. I haven't studied much about what Polly Wilts was like, welcoming him into the Deseret on Yandro after waiting inside for three quarters of a century. Anyway, I never heard of him following me down. Maybe he's been missed, but I'll lay you anything you name he's not been mourned. That was The Deseret Gonyandro by Manly Wade Wellman. So this has been another of our cryptids in classic fiction episodes. Uh, Again, cryptid, of course, being a kind of a mysterious animal of the nature of Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster. This story may be a bit of an unusual choice. Perhaps you can see now that the creatures and the monsters in the story are a little bit different. It's a bit different from our last episode with the um, yeti-type creatures um, in the Alps. That was, of course, the Horror Horn by E.F. Benson. This one's a bit different, has more of a folkloric feel, but it has the right elements of It has a certain amount of horror in there alongside the kind of folksiness. I remember as a kid, um, at first, when the the wise woman tells the characters about all of the different creatures that are out there, they seemed kind of silly and almost childish to me. They all have these kind of silly names. And uh, then by the end of the story, I remember being actually kind of creeped out that they were real. The story introduces them in such a matter-of-fact manner, and they are so dangerous, even though they sound silly, that even the fact that uh, they were kind of working together in a sort of a human-like way, uh, which, again, didn't didn't make them seem realistic, nonetheless was quite creepy to me. So hopefully you enjoyed that particular story. Um, There might be a few more episodes like this where I read tales as I am preparing some of my longer episodes uh, that require a bit more writing and a bit more research. But we'll see what the future holds. For now, I'm going to head back into the bunker, which means I will have to sign off. Um, If you like what you're hearing, please do subscribe uh, wherever it is that you listen. Drop us some stars, some reviews, anything like that, um, and share what we're doing on any social media you have. The best way to get in touch is on Twitter, where you can find me at at Strange Ireland. Uh, And yeah, that's the best way really to get in touch. So for now, signing off, and thanks for listening.